and welcome to Steminist Stories, a podcast celebrating some of the unsung women of science, technology, engineering and maths. I'm Reba, one of your hosts, a massive science nerd with a passion for engineering, space and sustainability. And I'm Nell, an ex-parasitologist and outdoor enthusiast. And I'm Rachel, producer and resident history nerd. Welcome to Steminist Stories. So welcome to our final episode of the series of Steminist Stories. Uh, which is really sad. But also really exciting, yeah. We've done an entire series. I'm very proud of us. All of us, the whole team. And very excitingly, we actually have the entire team of Stamina Stories here today. Yeah, it's a full house. You get to meet the people behind the scenes who make this completely possible. So, do you guys want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, so I'm Lucy, so I help with the researching for the podcast. I'm a statistician with a love for numbers, coding, and all things data. I'm Izzy, I lead on social media and engagement for the podcast, which has been very fun, I'd like to add. Um, At uni, I actually specialise in medical history, so a lot of the women we talk about on the podcast, I know a lot about and really admire. It's been very fun doing all the reading. I've been like, I have to read this book, everyone, for my podcast, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we've all done that. We've all been like, oh no, it's for research. And like, that's the only reason I bought 12 new books. Very excitingly, we're starting today's episode talking to Liz Bruton from the Science Museum. Cool, wonderful. So today we're joined by Liz Bruton, who is the Curator of Technology and Engineering at the Science Museum, which is a really cool job title. So can you tell us a bit about your role at the Science Museum? Yeah, sure. So I specialise in history of communications, and so I look after lots of different collections related to communications. So the really obvious ones like radios, telegraph, Mm -hmm. uh, mobile phones, but also cash registers, printing and writing, sound reproduction and acoustics. My job involves working on exhibitions and galleries related to those collections, um, acquiring new objects. So, you know, a lot of people might look around the Science Museum and think we have a lot of historic objects, but we're also collecting a lot of contemporary objects Mm. and also, you know, dealing with public inquiries, developing web content. Every single day is different. It's just a really, really great job. It does sound like a really fascinating job. So how does the Science Museum ensure that it tells the stories of women and that their contributions aren't overlooked? Yeah, so it's that's a really great question. And it's it's definitely one that's not without its challenges. So our collections date back to the 1860s. That's that's when the predecessor of the Science Museum collecting started. And obviously, we've got objects that are far, far older than that. And obviously, collecting priorities change. The information we gather about objects change. Um, how we think about them. So perhaps at the start of the science museum, particularly around the idea of like patent rights, uh, it was largely the science and technology of the artifacts. They sometimes came as unused objects. We didn't necessarily know, you know, who would use them or indeed if they had been used. Today, mm-hmm. we try and collect objects and the stories behind them, uh, the people who use them. So we're very keen to collect now more diverse stories of users. And that obviously includes uh, the stories of women. But we're also quite keen to sort of go back through our collections and highlight the objects that we have that connect with women, but also, you know, to go back and do a little bit of further research and see if we can dig out more diverse stories and and sort of more objects that connect with women. It's so hard, isn't it? We were talking in a previous episode about how you only record information that you think is important at the time. And so a lot of women's stories and working class stories get overlooked and it must be quite a challenge to go back and try and account for them. Sort of, yeah. I mean, we, and I mean that in the general sense of, you know, for a long time celebrated this this heroic inventor, um, you know, people like Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison. And they, I mean, at least particularly, you know, Thomas Edison, Edison, he was a member of a team 
Um, he had a lot of technical assistance. And while his name might have been on the patent rights and the company name, he wasn't working alone. And so it's important to, to recognise the contribution of others. There, I mean, there's lots of different ways. When we go back, we can obviously, we can look at archives, both our own and, uh, you know, company archives and, and material in the national archives as well, um, which can sometimes um, draw out a wider picture of who was working in a particular area of technology and engineering. We can go through like institutional archives. So one that we found incredibly useful and we've worked quite closely with is the Women's Engineering Society. So it's the oldest professional institution. They're amazing. And their their journal, The Women Engineer, is uh, digitized and available online through the IT archives. And the IT archives are also absolutely amazing for promoting the role of women in, in engineering and all sorts of different areas. And I was involved in a, a project called Electrifying Women with Professor Graham Gooday and Dr. Emily Reese at the University of Leeds, which highlighted this longer history of women engineering sort of before and during the early period of women's engineering society. So, you know, there's there's information out there, there's family histories for women whose voices may not have originally included some of them, you know, kept the documentation. And so that's now coming out as people, particularly in lockdown, people were like, well, what I'm going to do with my time? Well, maybe I'll trace my family history. So yes. I feel, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories to be uncovered in people's attics. Um, mm. Or as I was recently chairing a session at the British Society of History Science on Outreach and Public Engagement, the slightly facetious title, TikTok Your Scientist Grandma, um, which is <laughs> get, get people to talk to their older female relatives who might yeah. have worked in STEM and, you know, whose voices might not have been included in the histories, um, but now can be revived and, and like mm. talk to them sooner rather than later as well. Yeah. And try and capture it before it's lost. That's amazing. And also it's a great way to get people to engage with their personal histories and their stories as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're acknowledging the collaboration in, in science history is really important. I love that, that people are mm-hmm. part of the team and, you know, we stand on the shoulders of people before and lay the foundation of people in the future and it's all part of this continuum of work. Yeah, and, and that very much emphasises the collaborative and creative nature of engineering. I think, you know, we have this somewhat cliched picture of, I don't know, someone like Albert Einstein sitting in a laboratory, you know, working alone and sort of having this sort of moment of genius, if you will. Um, and actually, it's more like, you know, long-standing perseverance and large amounts of collaboration and creativity, um, not all of which takes place in the lab. So are there any really cool women that you've heard about in your work that you think people might have overlooked that you'd like to tell us about? I mean, that's pretty much like asking someone their favourite pet or their favourite child. I know, it's but, hard, isn't it? Yeah, I know you've covered her before, but I have to admit a personal favourite of mine will be Hertha Ayrton, just because whereas she covers so much ground, you know, she's... Mm. Um, she's a feminist, a suffragist, a mathematician, an inventor, a physicist, an electrical engineer. She develops a device called the Ayrton fan, which is based on her research into the motion of water and air, which ends up being used to clear gas from the, the trenches during the First World War. Um, she's a number of patents to her name. And, you know, she was part of this really large network of like of powerful women um, even though, you know, her network, her background, she was very much working class, um, mm. came from a Polish immigrant family. She was Jewish as well. She was enabled to do what she did in part because of, I mean, mostly due to the support of women in her life, but also her husband, William Ayrton. I, I don't know if he ever claimed to be feminist, but he seems to have been one. When their research crossed over in the area of electric arc lighting, he just stopped working that area entirely so that he wouldn't be given credit for his wife's research in the area. Um, and she wrote pretty much like literally the textbook on electric arc lighting, which is this very powerful form of lighting, uh, electric lighting that was in use in the late 1800s, both for outdoor lighting and for indoor and large venues like the Royal mm. Albert Hall and stuff like that. So she was this just incre- incredible woman who did contributed so much to various fields of STEM in the 18, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And yeah, just an incredible woman. 
um I love that she's such a polymath just like she seems to be able to do everything I think it's really nice her story in in combating this idea that you're one kind of engineer or you're one kind of scientist yeah I mean like the her first patent was for a drawing instrument that was used by both engineers and artists Mm. um and she developed that while she was studying mathematics at Cambridge and given the era that she was in, she wasn't granted a degree from Cambridge. Cambridge didn't give degrees to women at the time. So instead, she she got a degree from the University of London and, and, and then went on to work in various aspects of physics and engineering. And in part because she was a woman, she wasn't connected with this university network of researchers. So she had a home laboratory and quite a large amount of the photographs and artistic illustrations of her at the time are her in her home laboratory, um, because that was the only space that she had you know, to be able to work in. So just, mm. you know, this incredible, powerful woman. She's amazing. She is so amazing. And that's why, you know, like museums, it's important to tell these stories to people that might not otherwise get to to hear them. Yeah. So do you have a favourite exhibit or do you have a favourite object? In terms of sort of like the galleries in the Science Museum, sort of the permanent galleries, I particularly love the Mathematics Gallery. So it was, uh, as far as I know, it was the last design by the celebrated architect Saha Adid before she died. And it's this gorgeously lit and designed space about the practical applications of mathematics from women who worked as, you know, computers and mathematicians, you know, through to the use of mathematics in, you know, aeronautics. So at the heart of the gallery is this gorgeous 1920s biplane and the sort of gallery space swirls around it. And that's actually uh, an illustration both on the ceiling and on the floor of airflow around that, which was um, a practical application of mathematics um, sort of around the time of the First World War. It's, it's just a really gorgeous, interesting, thoughtful space that mm. tells these really interesting personal and and sort of larger creative and collaborative stories around mathematics in the past and in the present. And highlights how creative maths is. And, and it, like, it absolutely sits at the heart of engineering, science, medicine even today. A, a basic understanding of maths, I think, is something that stands to people for the rest of their lives, independent of which career they go into. You know, mm. something as simple as, you know, working out the interest rate on your credit card payment or is one bank account better than the other or how much change are you going to get in a shop and so on through to sort of designing some of the greatest structures in the world. Uh, mathematics sits at the heart of that. Yeah, it's amazing. Are there any items that you feel might have been overlooked but have a great story behind them? I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it's overlooked because it's it's hanging in the flight gallery, but I particularly love Amy Johnson's uh, Jason plane which is on the third floor of the Science Museum. So this is the plane that she used to fly from Croydon Airport, uh, just outside London, to Australia. So the context is Amy Johnson, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is a uh, celebrated aviator in the 1920s and 1930s, in in a time when there wasn't necessarily uh, a massive amount of female pilots. What is perhaps a lesser known aspect to that story is, and which enabled her to fly um, or rather, yeah, enabled her to continue to fly was that um, she had an Air Ministry engineer certificate and seems to have been the first woman to receive that. So she knew how to maintain her own aircraft as well. And so for our long distance flights, being able to have that skill set was an incre- incredible asset when, you know, you might, 
you might land in the middle of nowhere and have to sort out your own plane in order to fly on or even to survive. And she was president of the Women's Engineering Society as well, under her married name of uh, Amy Mollison in the 1930s as well. So, you know, she's celebrated as this kind of glamorous figure of long distance aviation in the, the 1920s and 1930s. But she was also an engineer of sorts in her own right. And, and that's perhaps a lesser known aspect of uh, a very well-known story. So, yeah, I would say the flight gallery, if I'm allowed to have it, is my second favourite. That's amazing. I didn't know that about her. Yeah. And and she was very supportive of other women in engineering as well. We, we think of maybe the cliches of her story, you know, the pictures you see in newspapers, the tempestuous marriage that she had with mm. Jim Mollison, another long distance aviator, or her tragic death in um, the Second World War, around which there are still some mysteries remain. But I think to celebrate her as someone who was, who had a, at least a background in engineering, even if she didn't necessarily have a university degree and someone who sort of was very much a supporter of, of other women in this field, both professionally mm. and personally, um, I think is a lesser known aspect to her, her familiar story. Hopefully it's being told now though, which is good. I think that's yes. the that's the case, isn't it, with a lot of a lot of female engineers and stuff. Their personal lives seem to be very well documented, almost sometimes overshadowing their work. Well, the Science Museum looks incredible. I think we should encourage all our listeners to go. Have you got anything you want to tell people about that's coming up? I would just say watch this space. Obviously, like most museums, our exhibitions program has been a little bit moved around because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But we've got some incredibly exciting exhibitions coming up across the entire Science Museum group. The colleagues in Bradford to the National Science and Media Museum um, have just opened up an exhibition on sound and vision, which is going to include a lot of women's voices. Um, so I'd highly recommend going along to see that. I myself curated an exhibition called Top Secret, um, which explored the history of signals intelligence from the battlefields of the First World War through to cybersecurity today. Um, wow. And depending on when this goes out, this is it'll be on at uh, the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester until the end of August. And then it'll be going to the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford next year. Amazing. That sounds that sounds incredible. And I mean, you know, even if there's not something specific to go to, there seems to be a ama- like there's amazing exhibitions on all the time. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Thank you very much. I'm delighted it's to be here. wonderful to have you. That was so fascinating. And to carry on with that theme, we thought in today's episode we'd look at objects from around our houses and how women in STEM have contributed to it. Um, and I saw a really interesting article that was like how different the home would look like if it wasn't for women because they were saying women spent so much time in the domestic sphere that they've come up with the really pioneering machines and inventions that help in the home. Um, but even stuff like you might not have your cup of coffee or home security alarms and all this sort of stuff if it weren't for women. And I thought that was really cool. It's like anyone who doesn't like doing the dishes, like dishwasher, invented by a lady. <laughs> she invented the dishwasher because she didn't like the fact her maids were chipping her fine china. So well, I envisioned it being some woman being like, oh, I'm sick of doing the dishes. But so it wasn't... It, it wasn't even her. No. <laughs> She didn't want someone else to do the dishes, I guess. Do it badly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I feel like that's slightly less empowering than I thought it was, but we'll <laughs> go with it. I mean, you can make it empowering. You know, girls got to protect her fine china. <laughs> have servants, I guess. <laughs> so what room does everyone have? Where are we starting in their home? Does anyone have a bedroom? I mean, I have a bedroom, but my... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just thought you slept in the hallway. <laughs> I mean, in working from home life, mine would be in the bedroom. Go on then. Mm, intriguing. 
Okay. Okay. So yeah, I mean, in an you'd find it in an office, but at home it's currently sat in my bedroom. <laughs> Bit outdated, I think, nowadays. But my item is correction fluid, aka Tipex. Ooh. Nice. Yeah. So it's actually an incredibly interesting story behind it, which you're in for a ride, guys. You're you're in for a ride. Oh, I'm so ready for this. Basically, it's invented by a lady called Betty Graham. Um, she was an American typist and commercial artist. So she was also actually, side note, she was the mother um, of musician and producer Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. Oh, so just a very famous, successful family then. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe his fame is actually attributable to uh, Tipex. <laughs> Scores out all his bad lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, yeah, so she was born in Texas and she married just before the, uh, the Second World War. And while her husband was away fighting overseas, she had a baby. And when he returned home from war, they actually got divorced. So to support herself as a single mother, she um, worked as a secretary at the Texas bank. And she she actually eventually got the position of executive secretary, which is the highest position open to women at the time in the industry. But to make extra money, she used her talent painting windows um, at the bank. And she actually realised that when artists um, paint, they never like erase their mistakes, they just paint over their mistakes. So she decided to do what artists do and paint over her mistakes at work. So firstly, she used some water-based paint in a bottle and used it to correct her mistakes at work. So she's not only kind of combining chemistry, but she's looking to other other professions like she's looking to art as well i love how artists paint over things because that's how they do they do a lot of like x-raying and stuff of famous paintings and there's layers to them isn't there like yeah i love it because it's like there's an art to science it's like in such a it's like a creative art form and sometimes i don't think science is often thought as creative in that sense it's often thought as like really you know cold and logical and factual but you know it's really artistic and it's really creative as well Whenever we talk about like women in STEM, STEM, sometimes people put the A for art into STEM, so it's like women in STEAM, which I just think's yeah, you can have art and science together. It's like what we're talking about, I think, in engineering, that so many inventions just happen because of necessity. And it's like just women who's just like, oh, actually, this is something that I'd find really useful, so I'm just going to invent it. Well, yeah, because if, if you think about typewriters at the time, it was really, really hard to erase mistakes. Like, you couldn't just press the backspace. Mistakes were super costly, not only time-wise, but probably like financially. So this is this is a big it's a big problem that businesses had. So it's really clever. And she actually um secretly used it for five years. So she didn't tell anyone that she was using it. I'm just super good at typing, guys. I never make a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it did come out, it was kind of frowned upon by her bosses because I guess it was almost seen as cheating. Yeah, because it's not like we're all human and all make mistakes. Yeah, but uh, but everyone was asked on the sly apparently, and and she called it she called it mistake out. <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound as catchy. What I found really interesting about this is that she enlisted the help of her son's chemistry teacher to um, put the final touches to it, and um, she originally called it paint out, which I quite like. I think that's better than mistake out. But and then they actually changed it to something I even find even worse, which was liquid paper. That's a bit weird, liquid paper. It did extremely well regardless. So despite starting out with a small loss, she actually sold the paper to the Gillette Corporation for $47.5 million in 1979. Which in in today's money is $174.73 million. Oh my God. Holy smokes. And she was sat on it for five years just using it herself. (laughs) I feel like so many women 
that we've talked about are like, oh, a man took the invention or they didn't make any money. And like, finally, we've got a millionaire. Multi-multi-millionaire. Yeah, but she was hiding it, like Reba said. And she had like, she built her own mansion. Like she, she spent that money and she made the most of it. And, you know, fair play to her. <gasps> she did amazingly. And she, she employed Good. 200 people and made 25 million bottles a year. And I think that's absolutely... 25 million bottles a year. How big were the bottles? Because I always think of them teeny weeny. Were they still teeny weeny back then? I don't know, actually. You know what? I'll have to I'll have to put a picture on our socials of it. Yeah. I want to see what the first bottle looked like, how big it was, and what it, kind of bottle it was. I just like, as a side note, to point out that I really like the fact that you've still got Tipex. <laughs> That's true. Like, as a thing in your desk. I don't think I've used Tipex. I used to use it to paint my nails white in school. Does anyone else do that? Yeah, I feel like that was my main memory of it. And then, <laughs> and then I would, like, nibble it, and it turns out it's, like, really bad for you. It's, like, really chemical. On graduation day, my friend got her pink lipstick on her white dress, ran out, got Tipex, sorted it right out. So there's many uses. I'm thankful she made that Tipex because <laughs> it's helped many fashion disasters. Tipex is one of those things, if I saw it in the stationery cupboard at work, I'd be like, no, I don't, I don't need that. Whereas like a post-it note or a pen, maybe. I think it's incredible that in this amount of time we've gone from like, this is a problem and a solution invented to it's no longer a problem anymore because we do everything online. Yeah. I mean, she sold the company in 1979. It's really not that long ago. I was just going to say that's such a good point about the change in technology that now it's like Grammarly that we use rather than Tipex. And like all this spell check. Yeah, do kids today know what Tipex is? <laughs> or are they like, oh, grandma. What's a pen? <laughs> My object that I've picked, I think it's quite similar. Well, not that similar, but in the terms of like the original technology behind it was invented so long ago and with absolutely no idea that this would be the use of it. And I am using this as an opportunity to just talk about another woman who I really like, who is vaguely connected. It's, it will work. So I picked a wireless speaker, which is technically in any room of my house, whenever I want it to. And it is the thing I use, probably the piece of technology I use the most, because um, I just constantly have music playing. But it kind of ties in, obviously, to Hedy Lamar, who we talked about earlier in this series, who invented or came up with the technology that Bluetooth was based off. The basis of the technology was invented as part of like the war effort. And yeah, now the technology has been used primarily for like us to play music or connect to various pieces of technology. The real important use. Yeah. <laughs> music in every room. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to kind of talk about, and this is my tangential lady, Suzanne Charney, who is an electronic musician from the like 60s, 70s and 80s mainly. And I think it's really cool because it's like, I think we often talk about women who invent things or create technology or come up with something new, but she's someone who used technology just in a really inventive and different way and just a way that like society didn't understand so she's a music technician and sound designer basically if you've ever seen like very old coke adverts like the noise of like the bottle opening she's the person who made that and Ooh. was like pioneering in sort of sound design because people didn't know how to do that before um but she used like synthesizers um to kind of create all these new things and like uses technology in a really interesting way so she works with like really early modular synths which are really cool. And they're basically like big blocks. You just like plug different parts in and it makes different noises. And there's a very famous, famous performance in 1980 where she goes on David Letterman in America. Um, and you can watch it on YouTube and it's hilarious. And she's like, comes with these like electronic devices and is trying to explain to people that she's making music. And it's like, they can't <laughs> comprehend that that's what's happening. <laughs> 
they're like, but it's not an instrument, but it doesn't have a keyboard. And she's like, well, no, it's making music. And they're like, I don't understand it. And she says, um, like, nobody even understood that the sound was coming out of the machine. It just didn't compute. It was so unknown that the connection couldn't even be made by people. And yet she's made it. That's so cool. Yeah. And I just think the reason I wanted to talk about her is I think especially with like electronic music and like synths and stuff, you just get such this mental impression of like the pioneers being men these very famous men who make like who created synths or like the faces of stuff and I mean like if you think back to like any mid-2000s band with a synth there's nearly always a man at the front of it playing it yeah that's very true but she's like one of the pioneers of it and people often don't really talk about her that must have been so uncomfortable though when she's trying to say like look I'm making music come out of this and everyone's like no you're not <laughs> like where's the drums where's the guitar this is just a box just booed off stage <laughs> I genuinely recommend watching it because that we'll post it because it's so so funny in how like how uncomfortable it is because she's just there trying to explain it and he's like I just don't understand but one of the reasons that she's not so well known is that she was trying to get like a record label for her music or a record deal for her music. And then they were like, but you're a woman. Why aren't you singing or playing guitar? You know, the typical attitude of like, no, but we can't sell girls music if you're not being like, if you're not a vocalist or you're not playing piano. Like, that's not. It's crazy how that persists, isn't it? I feel like sometimes we think of those kind of attitudes as something that existed quite a long time ago. But one, they still exist today, just maybe not in such obvious forms, but too even in those obvious forms like it really wasn't that long ago yeah i definitely agree with you on that one izzy yeah and like it's saying like even though like obviously she did all this cool stuff and like pushed forward things she's still not probably the most famous electronic musician and people still think of innovators as like generally men in this field the idea i think the idea of like the music producer who like sits in the back and does all these cool things and you say that to people they'll think of someone like mark ronson or calvin harris or someone i can't think of a single real female producer that jumps into my head and that yeah and they don't have the same kind of like personalities with her I think I was reading this article about it which was talking about like before some a lot of her like pushing to get like this electronic music and changing it like people kind of thought of instruments as like this physical thing that you had to play and it couldn't be understood outside of that and then she's one of the people who completely changed that. Mm-hmm. Which if you think about going from playing piano to like using plugs to make music, like that's such like a mental leap to get on. It is a huge leap. Like, I'm thinking now of just plugging some sockets into the wall and being like, I'm making a melody. I think now, you know, we, we're talking about like wireless speakers and stuff. You know, I think if you had someone who was only used to music, which you know, from like the 17th century and only used to music coming out of big orchestras, and we're like, the music comes out of this tiny iPod. They'd be like, how? How does that work? Yeah. But actually, it's all just a wavelength. It's all just manipulating wavelengths, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so much of the music we listen to now is based on electronic stuff. Like, people... Like, the, how you do music has changed so much. And it's a lot to do with, like, people like Suzanne, who just was like, sure, I just really like my synth. I'm going to spend years just working out how to make really cool noises yeah, on it. that's what kind of all science is, though, isn't it? It's just like it's manipulating the natural world in some way. It's just finding a different way to manipulate the wavelengths. Actually brings us on quite nicely to my woman, who did a lot of manipulating wavelengths and blocking wavelengths. So her name is Catherine Blodgett. I like that second name. That's pretty cool. That sounds like something from Harry Potter. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I was going to say she sounds like a Hufflepuff. <laughs> Um, anyway, so Catherine Blodgett. The Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> so she developed the anti-reflective coating for glass. Oh, wow. Which is now used on 
glasses and uh, computer screens and TV screens and windows and houses and loads of things. Actually, it's got it's got massive uh, scope. So she was born in 1898 and went to college. And during her senior year, they visited a electric company and she toured the labs. And the guy giving her the tour had been friends with her father, who was a patent attorney who had died just before she was born. And he kind of took her under his wing and encouraged her to do more studying in chemistry and physics and then went to work as his assistant. And his name is Irving Lagmer. And he actually is a Nobel Prize winning chemist. So she worked with him for like five years and then he encouraged her to go and do a doctorate. And she did her doctorate at the University of Cambridge and she was the first woman to receive a physics PhD from Cambridge Mm, in 1924, which is kind of depressingly recent. But actually, I... Compared to some of the stats we've had, I would say that's... Yeah, because they had women's only colleges, didn't they? But I mean, do we have um, the woman who was the first woman to get a degree in from MIT? And that was in like the 60s or 70s, wasn't it? Was that Shirley Ann Jackson? Yeah. Maybe maybe my standards have just been lowered over the series <laughs> now. Like, 1924, that's ages ago. And then she went back to the US and became a research scientist. She kind of realised that you could make a soapy film that would sit on top of glass so you could coat glass with this molecular soapy film and that would eliminate a lot of reflections so she used that to develop a reflective coating and um, so she received the patent in 1938 and then she went on to get five other patents in her lifetime and she published journals about it and lots of other kind of scientists have taken it and developed it further and now we actually have anti-reflective coatings on like most of the glass we use so windows in houses like I said and also the computer that we're recording through mobile phones that's so cool because I feel like that's one of those inventions that no one thinks about like no one goes like oh yeah it's really good that this has anti-reflective coating but then like you said it's on so much stuff that we use that it'd be really noticeable if it wasn't there also imagine like how many more headaches there would have been in the pandemic if all if all of us were looking at like reflective screens is that what they say as well when you wear glasses and a mask you should rub like washing up liquid on your glasses beforehand so they don't steam up it's the same logic this is like the sort of permanent version of that rather than yeah. everyone getting out there washing up liquid and be like oh sorry guys just got to get the old tv and the phone stop reflecting things today yeah exactly it's it's the same idea so it's really cool they also use it in um car windows a lot and lighting so it's really awesome and she and she I mean, she went on to do lots of really cool other stuff so in world war Two, she did a lot of research looking at developing absorbers for poisonous gases, de-icing aircraft wings, improving smoke screens, all using these kind of films. My gosh, what didn't she do? Yeah, she's really cool. Did she make any money off it all, or was it more for research? So she had a really long career, and she got loads of awards for her work, but there was an article in 1953 that celebrated uh, GE, which was the company that she worked for, GE Laboratories. So it celebrated 75 years of their work and she was left out of it so she is acknowledged but i think because she did a lot of her work for ge laboratories she's kind of yeah they take all the credit and the yeah and the use of the invention it's not like we were saying in our tech episode you know that's the issue is if you paint even though she it's her name on the patents 
because it's kind of she obviously worked with laboratory equipment that the company owned any money would have really been theirs yeah well it's like in lots of contracts now it's actually written into them that, that they own everything that you invent while you work with them and it's really sad because that's the case as well for a lot of research so a friend of a friend is doing a I think it's biochemical engineering PhD and because he's from a very wealthy family and his parents can afford to fund him for three years to do the PhD he can own the patent and then start a business with what he makes and make loads of money but if you don't come from a wealthy family that can afford for you to do a PhD and you have to get funding from a research body the research body will own whatever you make in that time that's insane. I never knew that. He purposely is like, yeah, he like talked to his parents and specifically was like, I want to own the patent so I can make the money off the invention. It is a very cool invention. I mean, there's a reason that most people don't do PhDs without funding. It's because you just can't afford to do it. I feel like that leads me nicely onto my objects. So thinking about thinking about things that you kind of take for granted and you can't really see. So my object is my car's sat-nav, but I could have easily had my phone or my smartwatch or basically anything that has a location um, monitoring. So I'm going to talk about GPS, so global positioning systems, which is all thanks to this amazing woman called Dr. Gladys West, who is still alive. She was born 1930. So the way GPS works is it's not actually really anything about mapping or location. It's all about time. So there's 24 satellites orbiting around the Earth twice a day, and they all have um, super accurate atomic clocks on that are synchronized. <gasps> and they're arranged around the Earth so that you're in view of at least four of them at any one time. Wow. No way. So when you use GPS to locate you, so your phone or your sat-nav or whatever it is, will pick up the signals from those satellites... And it will calculate based on when the signal was sent and where the satellite was at the time, where you are on Earth based on that. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't know if I ever thought about how GPS worked, but I feel like that is not how I thought it worked. That's so incredible. It's all these satellites. So they had the first GPS satellites were launched in 1978, but it wasn't really popular and used more until the first Gulf War. So in 1990, they were out in the desert. There was lots of desert storms and they had really limited visibility. And they needed GPS to help them locate things like mines and water sources. And basically to avoid getting in the way of things, like if a convoy is coming and you can only see like five feet in front of you, you don't want to be standing in the way of that convoy. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) The US tried to, so this is all done by the US, and they tried to have two signals. They wanted to have their super accurate time military GPS and then a sort of fuzzy one that civilians and everyone else could use. <laughs> but people found ways of making the fuzzy signal less fuzzy and basically really accurate. So in the end, in 2000, they made the super accurate signal available to everyone. That's so much more recent than I would have thought it was. Yeah, it was Bill. Bill Clinton was the one that sort of opened up GPS. But it was kind of like people were using the, the fuzzy one and making it more accurate before then. So yes, so Dr. Gladys West, it's all thanks to her. So she studied maths. She was born in 1930 and she was hired to work at the Naval Proving Ground in Virginia. She was the second black woman they ever hired and she was one of four black employees. And she came in as a programmer and a project manager for data processing systems. So they would analyze all their satellite data and like way too much data to do by hand. They did it all with computing. And she put together this model of the Earth shape. So it was calculating the shape of the Earth because the Earth's not a perfect sphere, all nice and smooth. It's like called a geoid where it has like bulges and there's different forces acting on the Earth. So there's gravity and tidal forces. 
which distort the shape. So even sort of, you know, constantly, it's not the same shape. It's always changing. I feel like you're consistently blowing my mind in these two minutes. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so she did all this work to like monitor the ocean. So you're not going to go out and like measure the, the shape and, every, and the depth of the ocean. So it was all uh, mathematical modeling. Um, so she did this computer program and all these algorithms. And then she literally, you know, when people are like, oh, they wrote the book. She literally wrote the book. <laughs> oh, if you were going to have satellites, these are the things you'd need to take into account. Wow, that's incredible. And then that work was used for when they did launch GPS. So she worked for the Navy for over 40 years. Then she, when she retired, she got a PhD at the age of 70. Wow. <laughs> Yes. And when people talk about GPS, they say it wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for her work and Einstein's work on uh, gravitational forces. So I think any time where your sentence, where your name is mentioned in the same sentence as Einstein, you're doing pretty well. She is so cool. And then GPS is like, it's just sort of the, when you think about all the uses for it. So it's sort of this invisible utility that we all use like all the time. So it's used um, every time you use your card or make a bank payment, anytime something happens, um, the stock market, even like for the power grids, all electricity depends on it. It's obviously used in anything that's kind of locational. So aviation and maritime and computer networks and digital TV and radio, because essentially all of these depend on different locations agreeing on the same time. So what time did a transaction happen? And then the GPS is used to determine that. They did a study about what would happen if there was a GPS failure. And they basically, the study, they concluded they didn't even know how much it would cost because it would just be enormous. So in 2016, there was a bit of an accident where they accidentally had the incorrect time loaded onto one of the satellites. So it was out by 13 millionths of a second. So tiny, tiny, tiny amount. But it meant that across US and Canada, all the emergency responder radio equipment stopped working. Ooh. Lots of systems have to rely on like, the backup systems in place. Uh, for the BBC, digital radio went out for two days, which is just <laughs> ridiculous. And it took it affected power grids. And even though they identified the problem, it still took a lot of time to fix. And with GPS, there's always the risk, because these satellites are in space, there's the risk that they could be hit by space debris. So all the little things, you know, going around in space. There could be a solar flare, um, you know, if, if there's solar storm. So basically all this GPS is sort of a vital part of sort of modern everyday life. And it's all thanks to Dr. Gladys West and her work. And it's something we're so dependent on and take for granted. It's just an amazing, amazing work. Yeah, thank you, Gladys. That is so cool. Also, like GPS is going to become even more important, isn't it, when we get to like driverless cars and things like that, because we have to rely even more on position being completely accurate. I mean, it's something that I am personally so dependent. I'm such I, very dyspraxic, very bad at directions. And like before, I had a smartphone with like Google Maps. I'd have to like really carefully write out the steps of how to get everywhere and I would inevitably get lost like three or four times. <laughs> yeah, I think it's crazy with driverless cars that if people were to hack into them, you know, and make you think, oh, this car's going towards, you know, nice clear road, nothing's happening. And you could be driving off a bridge or you could be crashing into another car. God. The potential to for people to spoof these things and cause harm 
is is massive. They still, in all likelihood, are probably safer than drive cars that drive by humans. Though I don't know, there was GPS spoofing with a aeroplane that almost drove into a mountain. It almost flew into a mountain. You think yeah. how did they like the pilot must have seen the mountain? Not notice a big mountain coming. It's like this thing where people just go by what Satnav says and then they drive into a river or something. You know, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> I better go this way. Well, I have something that we're even more dependent on than GPS. So I'm going to take you to a trip to the fridge for some food <laughs> because my lady is Florence Parpart. She sounds like a Hufflepuff as well. I feel like we need to stop offending people by calling them Hufflepuff. <laughs> I don't feel like you guys should be calling Hufflepuff. I mean, they're not, they're not calling anyone Slytherin, so... Right, so back to my Hufflepuff. <laughs> Florence Parpart was the person who patented the modern electric refrigerator and nicely... Like some of the other women, she actually managed to bank on this. Oh, great. As she was an absolute class marketer, she went and... This is a really funny photo. I don't know why it really tickles me because it's her with a cute little bob hairstyle standing in front of a fridge pointing at the things inside of it. And she just looks really awkward, but apparently she was like great at these trade shows and sold loads of versions. And I think her husband was also a great electrician. So I think he helped really nail the prototype and like they worked together and it just seemed like a nice, nice little marriage, nice refrigerator, really good. I feel like whenever we have like a, a supportive, nice marriage, I'm like, oh my God, the man is so great. Like they're never supportive. Whenever it happens, I'm like, <laughs> he wasn't like get in the kitchen. He was like, we'll both be in the kitchen. So I'm into that. <laughs> and she also randomly, well, I guess it's not that random, but she improved the patent for, and design for street sweepers. And it's a really cool design seeing what a street street sweeper looks like on paper. It just looks like something <laughs> from Star Wars. So I thought that was really cool that the fridge was created by a lady. I then wanted to think about what's going on in the fridge and is there any biology sort of stuff with the food in our fridge? And then it made me think about how we are starting to edit our food. And one way we can do this is with CRISPR technology. And CRISPR, yeah, is a way of gene editing and the fantastic thing is, in 2020, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to two women, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who founded and put forward the whole CRISPR technique. And it's been stellar. It's been incredible when it comes to gene editing. And it's already been used to fix genetic diseases in animals, um, to combat viruses, and even to sterilize mosquitoes, which helps prevent the spread of diseases they're starting to use it on pig organs to kind of prepare them for better human transplantation so they can use organs from pigs in humans and randomly to beef up muscles in, in beagles. <laughs> Sorry, can we rewind a second? <laughs> Key signs, organ transplant, anti-malaria <laughs> and beefing up beagles. <laughs> beagles want to be hench too, okay? <laughs> they, they got some egos on them. So yeah, so it's. I think it's really fantastic that they managed to get the Nobel Prize for it. And they're the only two women to share a science Nobel Prize in the history of the awards as well. So big kudos to them. I saw a really cool thing that said that they've, they've been friends for years. Yeah, one's a mum as well and like normal people. And like, like they walk down the, the, the carpet at the uh, Nobel Prize, like holding hands, being all like, good up, huh? Like, I just loved it. I loved it. I was like, yes! So is that stuff like when they take the gene from fish so they don't freeze and then put it 
into food. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that one was with CRISPR because I think that might have been before. But yeah, I think they took from the fish the antifreeze gene and were putting it in tomatoes to prevent the tomatoes from not being able to freeze and stuff. Antifreeze gene it was, so yeah. they weren't freezing in the delivery. But what is cool about the CRISPR use of today is it could potentially be using the stuff that's in our fridge in this kind of bio gene editing. So some of the ones that stood out for me that I just thought was pretty cool where and i want to know if you've got any of these in your fridge so chocolate does chocolate go in the fridge controversial this is a big question my mum puts it in the fridge and everyone was horrified to find this out when they visited my house it's too hard it will break your teeth i put mine in the fridge i put mine in the fridge i like the crunch also i don't know how long it lasts i tend to not have it long enough to require a fridge Okay, well, whether or not you have it in your fridge or your cupboard, we'll pretend it's in the fridge for this example. (laughs) But basically, they're using CRISPR to improve the immune system of the cocoa plant because at the moment there's a virus going across West Africa that's really affecting the crops. So that's one way they're using CRISPR. With bananas, I actually don't keep my bananas in the fridge, so this example is not going very well. But with bananas... We're we're just spreading out to the kitchen. All food everywhere. They can use CRISPR to make it more resilient to fungus. They've identified flavor notes in the tomato. So they're using CRISPR to edit these notes of flavor to make tomatoes even more tomato-y. So it doesn't matter if they're in your fridge or in your cupboard because they're going to taste like tomato. Then Pennsylvania State University with mushrooms. Where does everyone keep the mushrooms? Oh, fridge. No. No, not in the fridge. Reba, do you just not have a fridge? You don't put anything in the fridge. (laughs) I feel like what we're learning is that actually none of us know how to store our food properly. (laughs) (laughs) So Pennsylvania State University, I said, you know those ugly, ugly brown spots you get on your mushrooms? Yeah. Yeah. They chose the undesirable brown spots to like a melanin gene. So they were going to tweak that with CRISPR to change appearance. So they can tweak this to improve the shelf life and make it all look more appealing so people aren't throwing out mushrooms early. Yeah. So medically, they're using it in developing cancer treatments. They use it in gene editing for removing kind of in vitro issues. So they can do it. They're looking into the possibility of doing it to stop babies being born with haemophilia or cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disorders it's really really cool technology i think anything that helps with food waste is is such a plus because you know it seems crazy that we produce enough food easily to feed everyone but yet people are throwing so much away while other people don't have enough food yeah i agree i mean we were talking about jasmine crow in one of the earlier episodes and she was trying to combat that food crisis and she said the exact same thing it's not an issue of not having enough food it's it's just the logistics so things like this just really help i think that's the thing it's looking around and finding solutions to things that aren't there isn't it and using what you have or creating new things and that is something that all these women have done really well i'm really excited to see what develops in our lifetimes in terms of like what objects get made and what technology becomes developed yeah like if our kids are making this podcast like what would they be talking about Oh, that fascinates me. Just thinking about little kids doing little podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) It has been such a wonderful series and wonderful podcast to be involved with. Yeah, I found it so fascinating as as a listener, because I mean, this is the first episode that 
Lucy and I have been in. I've learned so much. No, same. I came into this not really knowing anything about STEM. And now I go on apparently vaguely repetitive rants about the women not being credited for their inventions properly. See, I feel like I joined this being angry and I'm leaving it feeling quite inspired. So it's nice. I feel like hopefully, though, in some generation's time, maybe it'll be our kids, maybe the next generation. It won't be a big thing. We won't be talking about like, this is the first woman to do this, guys. And it won't be anything sort of newsworthy. It will just be, oh, yeah, this person's pretty cool and it yeah and everyone has that equal opportunity to achieve these things and we just celebrate it normal like that is the dream thank you everyone for listening to this episode and the whole series we appreciate you so much thanks for joining us for this week's episode of steminist stories tune in next week where we'll be listening to more amazing stories from women in stem and don't forget to follow us on all our social media channels thank you to everyone from our behind the scenes team that makes steminist stories possible (laughs) 